Welcome to a special episode of the Eclectic Readers Podcast. I'm Tara. I'm joined by Patrick Phillips, author, poet, and translator. Today, we're talking to him about his fantastic and gut-wrenching nonfiction book, Blood at the Root. Patrick, thanks so much for joining us today. We are so excited to have you on the show. Um, you know, I got to see you at Book Riot Live last year. I the book wasn't at all on my radar before I went to see, um, before I went to the show and I heard you speak about it and I had actually just moved to Atlanta. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it really resonated with me and I'm like, where am I moving to? Um, and so I, I put on my TBR and I waited until it was my turn in the book club to recommend it to everyone. Um, got everyone reading it. And I have to say it was, you know, maybe yeah. one of the most impactful books we read all year. Um, so thank you so much for going to that event, for uh, introducing me to the book, uh, for just being there. Um, why don't you tell our readers a little bit, though? You're, you're more than just a novelist, obviously. Why don't you tell the, our, leader, our reader listeners um, a little bit more about yourself? Okay, uh, Tara, and thank you for having me on the show. I'm really delighted that you found the book and um, that you saw that panel at, at Book Riot. So as far as, um, well, your question was, how did I come to write the book or uh, about about my own work? Uh, yeah, just, uh, um, we'll get to the book a little bit, a little bit more about yourself though, like given- so, You know, I, you're right. I had not written um, prose before this. I had not written a nonfiction sort of research heavy historical book like this. I Most of my career up until this point, I've been a poet and that's the world that I've published in and really moved in. Um, I published three books of poems, um, also did some translating from Danish. Um, my, my sort of weird human trick is my my second language is, is Danish and they're only about five million speakers in the world. So um, I translated a Danish poet named Henrik Norbrandt and really had, had largely moved in the world of poetry until this until writing this story. So what made you, as a poet and translator, um, I, I, what made you write this story? Like what drew you to writing about racial cleansing in Forsyth County, Georgia? Well, you know, I, th I think I have a very unique relationship to the material in that I grew up in Forsyth County. My parents moved there in 1977 when I was seven years old and I started the second grade at, at the local schools at Cumming Elementary. So I think like, unlike a lot of people who might come to the story of, of a real historic atrocity like this, um, I wasn't I wasn't new to the story. I'd really known it since my earliest days, my earliest memories. And, um, you know, I'm from there. It's, it's what it, it's a place that I think of as home more than anywhere else. So I had been living sort of with the legacy of these events for most of my life. And um, I knew it was a really crazy story. I didn't know just how crazy until I got into the research for the book. Um, and I think, you know, there were a lot of obstacles to taking the project on, one of which was that I, I was a poet, so I had very little confidence um, in my ability to do this. And, you know, it turns out that's not actually how you pitch an agent on <laughs> is to say, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm pretty sure I can't do this. It's never going to work. Um, but that, yeah, that's I sort can of see how, that going poorly. I can see yeah, that going poorly. You know, that's sort of, that's actually sort of how my agent Don Fair and I really got started was me being quite, um, uh, worried about my ability to do it and him being very, very encouraging. So, you know, the one, the one, there are really two advantages that I had are that I'd known about the story and had been thinking about it for most of my life. So a lot of the places and family names and some of the events were familiar to me. Um, and then the other advantage is, you know, I, I had 
gone to graduate school. Um, I was an English major in college and went to graduate school in uh, at NYU and did 17th century British lit. And I did I wrote a doctorate on that. So I had once done a very research heavy project on totally different material. You know, my dissertation was about the bubonic plague outbreaks really between about 1603 and 1625. But I didn't think about it this way at the time. But looking back, I sort of see that all of that academic work I was learning some skills that turned out to be really helpful, and I, I was really becoming a kind of library rat and learning to, to <laughs> dive into archives. So that, you know, all of that means, while I didn't have very much confidence, I think I did actually have some preparation. I just didn't really see the ways in which that, or those early experiences um, were, were good preparation for this kind of a, a big project. Yeah. yeah. So, so other than becoming a library rat and like really digging into the research aspect, you know, how different was the writing process for Blood at the root, as opposed to your poetry work, for instance. Well, you know, there's some things. I think it's you know, in the in the culture of American letters, like it's much easier to focus on the differences. But I was a, I was really heartened and energized by the similarities. That while this was my first time out, and it was very funny. I'm I'm 46 years old, and. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a first book author in the world of, of nonfiction, which is really, it felt very funny to me because, you know, my, my first book of poems came out a long time ago. So, but at, at the same time, you know, the, there were a lot more connections than I knew. And mainly it just had to do with sentence level writing, um, you know, paying attention to concrete details, a real um, trust in the fact, in the actual, the specific and the local. And, you know, th those are the kinds of poems that I've been writing for 20 years. And yeah. so this story, you know, making it not just documenting what happened, but trying to make it vivid and real in the mind of the reader, you know, that really drew on my my bag of tricks as a poet in terms of um, really getting on the ground level and trying to really imagine the lives of other of other human beings. And that's that's a lot of the work that poets do. So I felt like there were a lot of connections. Um, you know, there were certainly some things that were very different. The, the research part of it was really kind of joyful to me. I loved um, making new discoveries and I would go long stretches without anything to really fuel the fires. And then I'd find something and I'd learn some new detail about a story that, you know, I had thought for most of my life was unknowable and that I'd really been led to believe, I think for very deliberate reasons, I had been led to believe by a lot of local people that there was no way to know what happened in 1912 with this, right. you know, outbreak of racial terrorism. But so so realizing that it was knowable or much more knowable than I thought was really thrilling. And that, that was very different from poetry, but certainly um, you know, I I I felt like a quick study of that. The part that I was completely unprepared for was interviewing people and knocking on doors and doing sort of shoe leather kinds of reporting. So I had a long learning curve on that. But also that felt like a real um eventually a really thrilling way to to work as well. So, um, you know, I, I have to say, I mean, I don't want to embarrass you. You probably won't be embarrassed, but, um, I thought the prose in the book, the way you wrote, um, this horrific tale was actually uh, amazing. I, I could never have written it as sensitively uh, with as much sensitivity and in, in a way that kept uh, the reader engaged that, that you could, that you did. Um, well, I just thought it was really special. That's not embarrassing. That's the kind of thing we, that's, I'll, I'll file that away for the future. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so, you know, how long did it take you to do all this research? 
You know, it's it's a little bit hard. I, I, I generally say about a decade, but that there's a lot in that answer um, to elaborate on in that it's hard to account for it the way you would a book that someone came to where they came to the subject matter fresh. You know, I've thought about it my whole life. Um, there were, you know, I in the book, there are some things that I discovered and I was able to verify them, but that I first heard about the lynching of Rob Edwards, um, which is a really, you know, gruesome episode. Um, I first heard about that from my sister-in-law. My brother married a woman who's from the Eccles family who go way back in the county. And so she heard the story from like a great grandfather or a great uncle or somebody. So she, so I had heard bits of oral history about this through my own family, through my, the, the woman that my brother married. Um, and that was coming down to me, you know, probably when I was 17, 18 years old. So it, it wasn't a conventional sort of arc from start to finish. There were bits of information that I'd been assembling my whole life. Some of the geography of the place that someone who was new to the story would need to learn. I just knew that in my bones. Um, some of the family connections, who was who in the hierarchy of the families in the county. I also knew that from, you know, I played Little League Baseball with kids from these families. I rode the school bus with them. Um, so some of that goes way, way back. I, I guess I really started collecting before I started believing that I was writing a book. I was just obsessively kind of greedily interested in finding every article, every dot on a map, every date and time and place and name that could bring this into closer, you know, in, into closer focus, sharper focus. Uh, I think I started doing that really obsessively about 10 years ago. Um, and that, that really began when I was playing hooky from writing my dissertation. You know, I, I do a lot of, <laughs> I do a lot of my best work when I'm supposed to be doing something else. And so I was, I was bored with what I was doing and I was exhausted with dissertation writing. And, but I realized that I was sitting in this, you know, in the library at NYU. And I realized that I was sitting at this computer terminal that had access to, you know, every digital library database in the world practically, and that it had all this power. And so I kind of, uh, you know, in a moment of boredom with other stuff, I typed in for Scythe County and 1912 and started wondering what I could find out. And that just opened Pandora's box. And, and so that moment probably happened about a decade ago. That's, that's amazing. So I, I, I read somewhere and it might've been, um, it might've been in an interview that part of you wanting to write this book was to talk about your whiteness yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, you know, and that's a story that I tell in the in the author's note at the end and that I've now, you know, I've now told it um, many times. But one of the impetuses for me really kind of getting off the sidelines and getting deep, you know, going ahead and taking the my own idea for this book seriously. And that was the biggest obstacle is, that, you know, I managed to get an agent to take it serious, sort of seriously. And I managed to get some of the people I was talking to at archives and interviewing seriously, but I still struggled to take it seriously because I didn't have a lot of confidence. And then a moment that really helped me get over that was, um, you know, I was talking with the poet Natasha Trethaway, who's an old friend of mine, and Natasha has written a lot about race. And she's a, you know, African-American woman who's whose father was white and her mother was black. And she was born in Mississippi at a time when her parents had had to leave the state in order to get married, you know, because the Mississippi oh, wow. laws were still on the books in, right. in, you know, early 1960s Mississippi. So, so Natasha had no choice but to write about race because it was such a central part of her own experience on and, and is still on a daily basis. And, 
you know, she had been, um, we'd been talking about some of this and there was this one moment when Natasha really confronted me in a way that I now look back on as both very generous and very kind, but also, you know, deadly serious. And she just said, you know, why do you, she, she knew where I was from and she knew about Forsyth County. Um, she went to University of Georgia. So it meant that unlike a lot of the people I know in the writing world, when I kind of casually mentioned to somebody that I was from Forsyth County, Georgia, Natasha really stopped in her tracks because she knew what that right. meant. And, she, you know, she would have been warned not to go there when she was a college student in the in the mid 80s. And so she she just said to me, you know, you're from this place and yet you've never written a word about it. Like you've written very little that touches on race, yet you're from this most ven venomously racist place. Um, and what she said was, do you do you think you're somehow not involved? Do you think race is only a subject for black writers? Um, and that really, that moment, really, you know, I think at the time I defended myself and I, I sputtered something, you know, I was probably typical <laughs> fragile white person, you know, slightly wounded and obsessed with my own emotion about this moment. But, but it, it, I never stopped thinking about it. And eventually that challenge, she gave me a challenge and both, I think both a challenge and an invitation to get involved. Uh, and to write about all of this. And that really did change everything. And I, I thought about that moment a lot and it became a spur to to really dive in. And, and I, you know, when you talked about the prose and I guess I'm glad to hear that it came across as sensitive because, you know, these are very treacherous waters for a white person to wade into, mm -hmm. uh, mainly because white people get it wrong so often. I mean, most of the time. And I think, you know, I was that conversation with Natasha made me aware at every moment that my mission here really was to honor the dead, to document what had been erased, to try to tell the story of people who could not tell their own story, who had left very few traces behind. And, and you know, the traces they did leave behind had been deliberately erased by the very community that had stolen from them and lynched them and, you know, dynamited their houses. So I began to take a very, um, to take, to take a view of my own role very seriously and, and to not do things rashly, um, and to always be aware that this, this was above all about trying to, um, you know, I wanted to finish this book and I wanted to hand it to some of the descendants I had interviewed. I wanted to give it to them so that they could give it to their children and their grandchildren and have the story told. So, you know, all of that was at the forefront of my mind, largely because of that conversation with Natasha. And, you know, that's not exactly, it's, I, that's not to say it's a book about my own whiteness um, in that I didn't want to make, because of all of that, I did not want to make myself a central part of the story, but I had to also deal with the fact that as Natasha put it, I was involved. So, you know, all of these things were on my mind as I was working. Did that conversation change um, the angle for which you were um, coming at the material at all? Or do you think it just sort of sharpened it? You know, I think it did a couple, it, it, it mainly, I didn't even have an angle at that point. I was, what I was, what I was doing was what I had done for most of my adult life, which was staying out of it. I knew the story, I was collecting all of this information, and yet with regards to this particular material, I was pretending that I wasn't a writer, that I didn't have this background as a researcher, that I didn't have this you know, particular relationship to the place, that all of which gave me really unique qualifications to do you know, 
honor to the subject matter and to the to the people in the African American community of Forsyth. So, you know, this this was Natasha said at one point she's like, look, this is your material. You you know, you need to write this is what has been given to you. And so I think it wasn't that I changed my course. It was that I finally realized that it was that by staying on on the sidelines of this, by not getting involved, I wasn't being polite. I wasn't being respectful. I was being lazy and dangerous, <laughs> you know, dangerously incurious. This Ta-Nehisi Coates uses the term incuriosity, and and he mm-hmm. he talks a lot in the case for reparations about the notion that. You know, it's not that the records of these thefts, the records of these expulsions don't exist. It's that no white people have cared to go looking for them. And right. so I, you know, I think more than anything, Natasha got me to overcome um, that, you know, ease. And, the, you know, there's, you know, that term white privilege gets um, thrown around a lot. But maybe the ultimate privilege is to not have to ever take any risks like this. Well, I'm glad you did. Personally, um, did you ever get that moment where you got to hand the book to one of the descendants um, that you interviewed? I absolutely did. I got it. I've gotten it over and over, and it's still going. I'm gonna. I'm going back down um, to Gainesville, Georgia, where a lot of the refugees from Forsyth resettled. You know, in the 19-teens, and so that community in Gainesville, which is where I went to high school, so I, I know that place also really well. Um, the black community there includes a lot of families that, you know, the phrase that the refugees used was they said they came out of Forsyth. And so there's still, you know, really prominent family trees in that community that, that have links to this um, racial expulsion. So I'm going to go down and speak to the black historical society there, which is a group that, you know, my very, very first research trip, I made friends with a woman named Barbara Borders Brooks, who works with the historical society. And she you know, she allowed me to come to one of their annual meetings and stand up and introduce myself and and tell everyone what I was working on. And that really put me in contact with a lot of these wow. families. So that, you know, um, but, you know, also at the Atlanta History Center, one of the very first events I did, I was projecting, there's an image in the book of a group of five children, the children of, uh, includes a, a guy named Fred Brown. And they're from the, from the Brown family, they're the grandchildren of Levi Greenlee, who was a prominent minister in the community. And this little boy in the picture, Fred Brown, is like five years old in 1896. And I was projecting the screen on a kind of movie theater sized um, wall behind me at the Atlanta Historical Society. And when it was over, I left that image of these beautiful children up just again, just to bring it home to people that that um, these were real lives that were impacted by this. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a woman when they had a Q&A, the first woman who came up to the microphone at my really very first public event, I had a little boy on her hip and she walked up and said, you know, I have a comment and a question. And I said, what's your comment? And she started crying and she pointed at the picture and she said, that's my great, great grandfather. Oh my gosh. Um, and that was Fred Brown. And there's, and she said, that's my great, great grandfather. And I, you know, I said, what's your, I thanked her for coming and told her I wanted to give her a book. And I said, what's your question? And, you know, again, through tears, she, she looked at her little boy and she said, how do I keep him safe? Um, you know, and that there, there's been no moment as powerful as that to bring home to me how little has changed. You know, here's, here's Fred Brown's great, great, great Fred Brown, who was expelled from Forsyth, who suffered, you know, attacks from the Knight Riders, um, in 1912, here's his great, great, great grandson, uh, you know, in 2017 and his mother worried that he'll, you know, be killed by the police. So, um, you know, moments like that are really, you know, have been really amazing and, and, you know, terrifying, 
but you know, certainly also giving her a book and meeting the Brown family and um, other people from that community has been amazing. And I've, you know, I've, I've been invited to some family reunions and things like that. <laughs> it's, it's all very flattering to me and, and an incredible um, change in my life. You know, I, I, I did not have connections with the black communities in Gainesville or Atlanta, or now there's a black community in Forsyth County as well. So all of this has been very much to my, to my benefit and enrichment. Well, that's just an amazing story. Um, what was, there's a lot of um, hard moments in the book, yeah. hard, even like little details. Yeah. Um, that we, as a group, we discussed in quite detail, like what was the things that really just gut wrenched uh, for you in this book? And uh, like for me, for instance, it was the rope being used as a bookmark. Yeah, that's it, real too. That's real. I've, I've seen, there's a photograph of that rope and, um, you know, up until the, yeah. So, yeah. So that, I don't know, maybe I should let you finish. <laughs> no, it's okay. I mean, I, um, it was th that for some reason, like, just like it gave me shudders. Like it made me so upset. I ended up crying, but I mean, there's several points in the book where I ended up crying, but, um, for some reason that really hit me hard and everyone has their own little moment. Um, what was the hardest part of the story for you to write about? Was there any like little detail like that, that, that you know, I had that, I had that experience regularly and there's a lot, there's some things that didn't make it into the book that, you know, I, I, I ended up writing, uh, it's about an 80,000 word book and I wrote about 200,000 words, you know, to get to it. So, um, so there's a fair amount on the cutting room floor that was really moving to me too, that just didn't, I couldn't make it fit. Um, or sometimes, you, you know, sometimes for me, it would be something that, is a little maybe more uh, just woven into the book, but like when I there are things I didn't know. Like when I first started researching it, I had read newspaper accounts that referred to the two men they, as the newspapers put it, who supposedly raped and killed May Crow. Um, you know, they were called in the headlines the lowbrowed gorilla type Negro. Uh, their ages were estimated at like 25 and 27. Oh my and, God. At, but at the beginning of the story, I didn't know who was who. So I, how did I, I thought probably that I didn't, I thought maybe they are 25 and 27 and maybe they were like Rob Edwards was a big man. He was known as big Rob. And this is Rob Edwards who was lynched. Mm -hmm. Um, but the other two victims of the mob, um, you know, their, their lynching was a legal lynching, but it's still very much like a lynching to me. Um, Ernest Knox and Oscar Daniel, I'd read all of these reports. And then when I found them in the census records, you know, the census record from 1910 shows Ernest Knox, age 14, an orphan living as a hired man with a white, a white guy named Guilford Bagby. And so, you know, I have a 14 year old son in my house um, and I have a 16 year old son. So Ernest Knox and Oscar Daniel became incredibly vivid to me because I'm surrounded by teenage boys all the time. And so the, when I think of my goofy sons um, and how far they are at 14 from being men, you know, I, I was heartbroken to think of Ernest Knox before all of this happened, leaving his uncle Buck, um, leaving their house and going to live as a hired man with a white farmer nearby. And, you know, I tried to imagine where he slept and what his what it was like the day that he first went there and was going to live with this white family as, as and you know, and the whole, even the phrase hired man right. kind of 
broke my heart realizing that he was 14 years old. And that was that was already true in the census. So he may have taken that job at 12. I have no idea. Um, so so there were I think some of the parts of the story that broke my heart were certainly things that happened in the dramatic moments, but other parts of it were really, really mundane, like the notion of a 14-year-old boy being sent to live with a white farmer. Um, there's a part where, you know, Ruth Jordan remembered that Ernest and Oscar had, she'd seen them roasting worms, you know, to live on during the winter because they were so hungry and so poor. So some of the f really sort of utterly total universal um tragedy of what white America did to African-American people mm -hmm. in the Jim Crow era broke my heart as much as any of the dramatic moments. What, um, you know, you mentioned that you left some stuff on the cutting room floor. What's the one thing you regret most not being able to put into the novel? Well, you know, the hardest thing, the hardest thing for me and the question I've been, and this, I, I just wrote something for the paperback. They asked me to write a, an, a sort of additional um, afterword for the paperback. And the, the question I've been asked more than anything else on the road has to do with who really killed May Crow. Um, and that, you know, that, I, I understand that, and that fascinates me too. It also sort of, it annoys me a little bit that after after I talk about the book and after the whole thing, the question comes back to the white woman, right? Um, which which is hard. At the same time, clearly, you know, there was a victim in September of 1912, in addition to Rob Edwards, Oscar Daniel, and Ernest Knox, and it was 18-year-old May Crow. She really was beaten over the head possibly raped, though it's hard to know whether that was true or not, but she was murdered. So a young woman was murdered. So, you know, one of the things that's, that I regret putting on the cutting room floor was some speculation about who actually killed her. But the reason that that ended up on the cutting room floor is that, you know, the book is nonfiction. It's not a novel. It's not invented. Mm -hmm. it, you know, it's not a movie. And so it doesn't work out quite as tidily as one would want. And, I, you know, I can freely admit I set out to solve the crime. I I'd spent a lot of I spent many months hoping to find out. But my my belief is that the murderer of May Crow took that secret to his grave um, and anyone who might have known about it took it to their graves. And so I think that mystery just remains. But yeah, I would, and and one of the reasons that all ended up on the cutting room floor and other things did is I really was unwilling to put anything in the book that I could not document and verify. And that has to do with, again, my personal connection. I grew up with the myths. I grew up with all the lies. Um, I grew up with all these distortions that really served white supremacy. So I didn't want to, I didn't want to do the inverse of that. I didn't want right. to, I didn't want to say anything. So, you know, I, I really was adamant that the book would have 35 pages of notes at the back and that I would say where I got everything. So I, I didn't want to put anything in there that I couldn't corroborate. Um, so that's a lot of what ended up on the cutting room floor were things that I felt were true, but that I couldn't prove were true. So, you know, personally, I think everyone should read this book. I, I think it's a really, really important book. Um, I'm sure you agree. Um, However, did, did you have a specific demographic in mind while you were writing this book? Or do you think there's specifically a group of people that need to read this book more than others? Well, that's a really good question. Um, and yes, you know, it, it, there's no question that white America needs to read books like this most of all. Um, that's That goes for a whole category of books that really influenced me and that I 
was trying, um, that I aspired to, like The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, um, Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, Isabel Wilkerson's Warmth of Other Sons, and you know Ta-Nehisi Coates' work, all of that. I think you know white America needs to read these things more um, than African Americans, and I, I think you know I was I was aware the whole time I was working on it that there were elements of this story that are too all too familiar to people of color in America. Um, it's it's white Americans who want to contain racial violence in the past, who want to contain white supremacy as if it was only the work of the Klan, as if white terrorism was only the work of terrorist, you know, quote, terrorist groups like the KKK. Um, when in fact, you know, what I found in Forsyth County is this was the work of farmers and, you know, merchants and blacksmiths and, you know, um, a county sheriff, you know, Bill Reed. Right. So this was the work of, of, of a community, not of a fringe group. So I think that white Americans are the ones who have clung to this very comforting narrative that that the past is, uh, you know, where white terrorism lives and is over. And obviously, you know, while I was working on the book, the attacks in Charleston happened, you know, the deaths of uh, Mike Brown happened, you know, all, all of these things were going on to make it very clear to me that this is not over. And so I think white people need it more than others. And, and this was brought home to me by another reaction that I got a lot, which was, you know, looking at Goodreads and Amazon and stuff, there were, uh, you know, there were a small but vocal group of people who abandoned the book because of the photographs, um, because of the lynching photographs. And, you know, that kind of astonished me because what it meant was that there were white readers who were encountering the history of lynching in America for the first time in my book in 2017. Um, and, you know, groups like the Tuskegee Institute have identified you know, 4,000 something lynchings with specific people and dates and stories behind them. And there, there are undoubtedly many more that are still undocumented. So, and at one point, you know, these fo the photographs like the ones in my book were circulated as postcards all over the country and were a mainstream part of white culture. So the idea that that history has been erased, the idea that someone could be so shocked by a photograph of a lynching victim that they, that they simply have to close the book and stop you know, that that really does suggest fragility to me and, and an astonishing amnesia um, about the real history of the country and the real history of the of the 20th century. Yeah, th those photos were definitely hard and gut wrenching, but honest. You know, it is what happened. Well, I, I was determined to put them in there. You know, there's not a photograph of Rob Edwards is lynching, but there's a photograph of another man who was lynched, you know, 20 miles down the road in Lawrenceville one year earlier under identical circumstances, um, a man named Charlie Hale. And, you know, he was dragged from the county jail. He was strung up on the town square from a telephone pole, and his body was riddled with bullets as people in the crowd all joined in the killing. And so it, it was really important to me to include that photograph um, because while there's not a photograph of Rob Edwards' as lynching, it, it gives one a direct look into it. really we can we can say with some certainty pretty much exactly what it looked like. And so, you know, I, I don't want I didn't want white people to get off the hook um, by not looking at, you know, the results of what the culture once did. If you could hope that one for one thing that readers take away from this, um, what would it be? Oh, that's a hard one. You know, I think, I think the takeaway for me 
um, is that there's really no way forward without turning and looking back. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this episode in Forsyth County is one of hundreds of such expulsions. There's a, there's a great book um, called Sundown Towns um, by a historian named James Lowen that, that documents evidence of these kinds of expulsions happening all over the country, you know, to Asian people in the Pacific Northwest, to Latino people in Texas, um, obviously to African-American people in places like Tulsa, Oklahoma, where, you know, in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, local whites got in crop dusters, flew over the black part of town and dropped dynamite onto houses. And, and if somebody does a Google search of Tulsa, uh, you know, race, quote, race riots, you'll see photographs that look like World War II, look like a bombed out Dresden. Um, but it's the black part of town in Tulsa after a rape allegation. So, you know, to me, that history has never been faced. We've never had the equivalent of, of South Africa's truth and reconciliation hearings. Um, there's never been a real reckoning with this history. And so I, I think people who don't know that history tend to walk around with a very different idea about America. And I think you can kind of predict people's political attitudes in 2017 pretty well by which version of American history they carry around in their head. You know, one that has been really cleansed of white terrorism versus someone who knows what actually went on. So, yeah, I think if there's a takeaway, it's that that we have to turn and look at precisely how the places where we live came to look the way they look and accept that there's really, I don't think there's any way forward out of um, America's racial conflicts and the, you know, the on, the legacies of white supremacy and the ongoing culture of white supremacy without turning and um, having a version of truth and reconciliation about what happened. I could, well, I completely agree with that. Um, let's talk about the end. Uh, you know, you end on a somewhat hopeful note. I mean, if, can I call it hopeful? Um, I don't. Actually, but other people have read it that way. I, I, I kind of call it skeptical and maybe hopefully, skeptically hopeful or hopefully skeptical. It, it, it sort of reads to me like um, a we will go on sort of a thing. So, um, at, at, so a little bit about me, which doesn't really matter, but I'm Jewish. So I really um, empathize with the with that moment in the book, in the book. with that uh, just that we will go on message. Mm-hmm. Um, well. Plus, before that, uh, you do talk about how the area is changing, how there is a growing black population, how, uh, you know, almost it's been the, the not that the situation has been erased or those myths are gone, but that people are actively trying to move on from them in the area. Um, yeah, you know, I've gotten a little bit of a corrective to that um, in going back there and and. You know, my thinking has been altered a lot by Ibram Kendi's book, Stamped from the Beginning. Um, and, I, and I got to meet and talk with Kendi a little bit. And, you know, mm-hmm. he, he talks about the notion, um, you know, Stamped from the Beginning is, you know, a, a definitive history of sort of racist ideas in America. And he talks about the notion that while we, while we talk about progress and we think about, you know, Rosa Parks refusing to give up her seat and the Montgomery bus boycott and the Selma march and these milestones of progress, Kendi makes the point that, you know, that metaphor of progress along a given track ignores the fact that there's this other track running in parallel with it, which is the development of racist ideas, which also continue to evolve and change um, and and stay with us. And, and I feel like that's actually what's going on in Forsyth County right now. There's no question there is a small 
pe community of people of color, it, the county is about 10 percent Latino, 8 percent Asian, and still, I think, under 4 percent African-American. Um, it is still the whitest large county in America. And this is, you know, this is right outside Atlanta, um, which has a very large African-American population, African-American city government. So, um, you know, there are some signs of change. The, the biggest one for me is a, a guy named Daniel Blackman, who's now a friend of mine, ran for the state Senate from Forsyth County this past election cycle. And he got, you know, more than 20 percent of the vote. He didn't win, but, you know, a, an African-American Democrat running in Forsyth County and, and winning a fifth of the votes is a really hopeful sign. And it, and it showed that it was possible. I thought it was incredibly brave. You know, I was nervous going back there just because I'd written this book. And there was Daniel campaigning on the courthouse square, you know, the same square where this lynching took place. So I think there are some signs of change, but at the same time, you know, um, Donald Trump's statewide campaign, one of his statewide operation directors was a guy named Michael Williams, who was the one who beat Daniel Blackman in this election. Um, he's a very strong proponent of the Muslim ban and some of Donald Trump's most hateful rhetoric and a lot, you know, this is big time Trump country. So a lot of the racist, white supremacist, xenophobic rhetoric of 1912 is alive and well in Forsyth County. And it's, you know, a lot of it being as, as across the country being directed at, at immigrants and Muslim people. So um, I do feel ho hopeful that there is there are some efforts to take down, you know, the monument of the white supremacist on the coming square. There are some efforts to potentially, you know, add discussion of all of this history to the school curriculum. But, you know, we'll see. I, I'm skeptically hopeful in that there, there's going to be resistance to all of that. And there are still very powerful forces there who don't want those changes. Well, let's talk about um, where I went wrong, the story of the doll. Um, at, at the very end, mm -hmm. uh, how so? How did you view it, or how did you mean for readers to take? Oh, story? I don't think you went wrong at all. You mean that? You mean that that was maybe a somewhat hopeful? A, a bit. <laughs> I think that's right. And I, maybe we were talking about two different ones. You were, what you're talking about is at the end of that author's note, which I think is hopeful. And I, and I was sort of talking about the end of the chapter before that. So so that's actually my bad. Um, no, I, I did mean for that to be. Yeah, the hope is the res is the resilience, and I'm, I did intend for that um, to be a kind of love song uh, and just a, a song of praise to the families and to that resilience and to the notion that um, you know these the the refugees from Forsyth County are far flung and um, you know have persevered and their strength was really incredible to me and their. Um, you know, their resilience in the face of not just what happened in Forsyth County, but the century since then. Um, so I, I think there is hope in that. And, and of course, it praise and hope are a little bit different. You know, I, I hope impl hope implies that, again, I, I guess what I'm resisting is the progress narrative, is the narrative that suggests everyday America gets a little bit better, a little bit more just, a little bit more closer to equality. And I was really raised on that narrative because my parents were activists. Um, but I don't believe that anymore. Um, and I think one of the lessons for me of the book is that there are these moments when the gains of the past can be given back and what one generation has won with, you know, incredible um, fight and resilience can be can be swept away. Um, and it seems to me that, we're, you know, with what's going on 
um, under the Trump presidency, we're in one of those moments where a lot of the living through it. Yeah, a lot of the gains of the, and that that's happened before. It, it happened to the families in Forsyth. You know, the <clears throat> excuse me, you know, the families who were expelled in 1912. Some of them were better off in the early 1870s than they were in 1912. They had had black elected leaders. They had had um, you know representation in Congress. They had the Federal Freedmen's Bureau in town to protect their rights to fair wages, and all of that was swept away in the 1870s. And you know, Jim Crow means that in 1912, they have fewer rights and less recourse to the rule of law um, 50 years after emancipation than they had in the years right after emancipation. So this is not new. Um, and so that I think of it as a praise song to that unbelievable resilience. And you know, I wanted to honor that part of American history, which seems to be about the most noble you know, part of, this, of our national story. Um, but that's a little bit different from, from hope. I, I don't think things have changed in the ways that we need them, but um, you know, I think sounding the alarm at a moment like this is is clearly necessary. Couldn't agree more. Um, and hopefully, this interview will do that. Some people will listen to it, and something will key. You know, something will ring for them. Um, but I know that we're running out of time, so I want to ask. You know, what's next for you? Do you have any more? big research projects in your future, um, poetry book in the works. Oh. I'm, I'm literally trying to figure that out um, hour by hour right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm a teacher, so I turned my grades in a, a week ago and I'm now turning to see what to do. So, um, you know, I've, I learned that I can write, that I, I can keep myself in the chair long enough to write a book like this, which opens up some new possibilities. I also really love poetry and miss it. So, um, and, and I'm trying to figure what, out what I want to do next. The, the other thing that a wise friend told me was that a research project like this always includes avenues that you don't go down um, because you have to contain the project. And he was like, you know, one of those avenues might be the, might be the next book. Um, and for me, a lot of the, the most tempting one to go down was the research I did on the Cherokee removals in the 1820s um, and the Georgia gold strike and um, really the history of a there was a period when America was was more multicultural, more polyglot, um, more accepting of Native Americans, freed Black people than we think of, um, and and this frontier world of Georgia in the 1820s was like that. So I've I've gotten very fascinated in that. So we'll see. That, that well, that'd, be, that'd be really interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, it's sort of like if you run a marathon, you don't exactly sign up for the next one the next morning. So I'm trying to. Right. I'm, I'm, like, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're letting your legs rest. That's right. That's right. So uh, last question, uh, the question we ask everyone, uh, what is your eclectic pick? Um, you know, I've been, I've, I've, I've been thinking about it. Um, can I do just one? You know, the book, this is not exactly that eclectic. Um, it should be better known. But the book that was a touchstone the entire time I was working was The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, and I think for some listeners, that book will, you know, that book should be on the shelf with classics and very well known and not eclectic. But I've, I've been surprised to find that it, for a lot of white people, it is rather eclectic. Um, but Du Bois wrote this, you know, during almost the exact same years as the story I tell in Blood at the Root. And that, that was astonishing to me that he's in his Atlanta University office, um, you know, very much an African-American intellectual and aristocrat future 
um, you know, editor of the crisis at the NAACP, but he's a, he's a, in his Atlanta University office writing The Souls of Black Folk during these same years. And so I had an, a kind of academic interest in it and a selfish interest in it for my own work. But when I really went back and read it, I was just astonished by the beauty of the prose, astonished by the the gorgeousness of of the structure of the book. Um, and, you know, it it made me realize that my own education as a literature, you know, as an English major had been white supremacist in its way that I had become really addicted to Shakespeare and I love King Lear and I'd read Chaucer and I love Dickens. And I had internalized the notion that that kind of writing that absolutely becomes part of my own personal pantheon was done by white people um, and largely white men. And Du Bois's book um, I had thought of in a kind of sociological way. But then when I really got into it, I realized it's it's up there among the most beautiful things I've ever read. And, a, you know, uh, an absolute gem of all the things I've read in the English language. So The Souls of Black Folk, W.B. Du Bois. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Patrick. We are so happy you were able to join us. Um, I know a lot of our listeners, um, we had quite a few people who listened to our episode about Blood at the Root. I know a lot of our listeners are going to be really excited to see this one come out. So again, th just thank you for joining us today. Hey, thank you for all the great questions. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Excellent. Well, this concludes our interview with Patrick Phillips. We hope you enjoyed this special episode. Um, thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll join us for our next monthly podcast at the Eclectic Readers Podcast. Uh, check us out at eclecticreaders.fireside.fm or on Goodreads. And look for relevant links in our show notes. And yeah, let's shelve this until next time. <laughs>